was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage, Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. the way. And today, I am so honored to welcome my guest, the legendary historian and one of my personal heroes, Ethan Morden. As America's top theater writer, you may remember his legendary Decade series chronicling the history of the Broadway musical from the 1920s on, his biographies on Sondheim and Ziegfeld, the man who invented show business, plus When Broadway Went to Hollywood, Anything Goes, and more. If you're a reader of gay fiction, his buddy's cycle of books have been some of the most influential in that area, too. But Mr. Morden joins me today to celebrate the publication of his very exciting new book, Pick a Pocket or Two, A History of British Musical Theatre, which is currently available from Oxford University Press at the link in the episode description. It's a fascinating book and truly a must-read whether you're British or not. So now, go buy the book, and then, without further ado, the man himself, Ethan Morden. Okay. Well, so I'd love to start by asking you how the idea for this book came about for this British musicals book. This book. I always say that I don't really, you, you don't know where the ideas come from. There's a famous story that, uh, um, we're going back to Gilbert and Sullivan, and Gilbert, who's the librettist and lyricist of the of the team, is in his study, and a ceremonial Japanese sword that has been hanging on the wall suddenly falls. I guess the you know the support gave way, crashed to the floor, and Gilbert says, "I'll write the Mikado." That's the famous story. But the thing is, normally things don't happen that way. Just one minute, you don't know what your next book is. And the next minute you do, it's British musicals, and I don't know where it comes from. Yeah, yeah. So how did you come up with the title, Take a Pocket or Two, other than it, of course, being a quote from Oliver? But um, I, You know, I always start with a working title, and sometimes they're really terrible, but it, you have to call it something. And I, I, it was a line from Noel Coward. I don't even remember what the line was, but in any case... I was looking at it and I thought, all right, now it's time to, you know, make a change. I, I said, I need something snappy because this thing is just dead. And I don't like academic titles and I don't like fancy floozy titles. I like something that grabs you. And I thought, oh, I know, pick a pocket or two. It just comes to you. And it has nothing to do, of course, with the book other than it's the fact that it's a line from a British musical. Yeah, yeah. And did you begin this book before quarantine or during I don't remember. Let me just oh. see. Uh, I, I handed it in. No, I'm sorry. It's coming out just about now. So let's say I handed it in a year ago. That would be September 2020. I, it, it precedes quarantine. Oh, yeah, yeah. They take a year to write. Actually, they take a year to research and then a year to write. And then there's a year of production. It's really three years altogether, and door to door. Yeah, yeah. And are you often working on multiple books at once? Um, I, I normally have a pipeline of multiple books, but I only work on one at a time in terms of writing. But while I'm writing, 
let's say book number, let's call it A, we proceed with book number double A, which is being researched at the same time. But I wouldn't want to try to write. You know, when you're writing a book, you start to carry a lot of ideas in your head. You've got themes that you've got a drive line basically, but you also have a number of through lines and they're just sitting there and they're developing on their own as you go along. You've got to take notes. You have got constantly running to the desk with a you know pen in your hand to get down the latest. I always have a um, um, a clipboard um, and, and it's filled with papers of just any ideas that I jot down, and it's keyed into the outlines that I make. I, I, I know my books look as if I write them off the top of my head because my tone is very conversational, very friendly and playful. But believe me, it's a lot of work. It's just homework oh, yes. for the rest of your life. Yeah, yeah. And so to go back to British musicals, what do you prefer about British musicals or find more interesting than American musicals, if there is anything? Well, I, I, I don't know that I would call the more interesting they're different yeah. uh, neither better nor you know um, worse but different and it gives you a different um, uh, um, experience in the theater I date back to I saw the original Salad Days when I was very very young and that was a completely different experience at that time I was the jaded theater goer who had been taken to uh, so many musicals I hadn't seen any straight plays at that point um, all, all the you know the famous ones of, of the time, starting with The King and I, but also Can Can, Kismet, The Pajama Game, Damn Yankees, a, oh. a couple of strange things in there, Candide, oh, which was yeah. like the greatest event you know of my entire life, and I remember that show very vividly. I'm happy to say I did have to threaten to uh, pull my little brother's arm out of its socket because <laughs> I, I knew it was heading toward um, closing, and I, I needed to get there before my parents were being very dilatory about it. I did end up seeing it on its last. Saturday afternoon, wow. and I was in the front row, no less, with my father, in fact. So I'd seen all these, these shows, and then uh, I'm in London, and we're staying at this hotel, and it's on the same street as the theater the, that Saladay's is playing in, but when I got into um, the show, um, it was a very different experience, and quite aside from all the other things, um, such as they're playing My Country Tis of Thee before the show began, which turned out to be, in fact, God Save the Queen, and I got to my feet just in time. Quite aside from that, it was essentially like an off-Broadway musical, but I hadn't seen any at that time. I was I, I, I never bothered with off-Broadway. I missed, for instance, the famous Three Penny Opera with Lotta Lenya. I just, somehow or other, it, it wasn't part of my ken. It wasn't in my ge geography. And because I, I navigated around the cast albums that my parents had, but also those big full-page ads that used to run in the New York Times on Sunday in what we called Section 2. It's now called Arts and Leisure. And I'd see these big ads, and you'd never see a big ad for an off-Broadway show. In fact, I don't know where the, the ads for off-Broadway were at that time in the Times. So I, I was used to these big musicals, big productions. And here was this actually a, a regional. It came from Bristol. And it had been playing for a long time. I, I, I knew it well, because my Aunt Agnes had brought back the cast album. That's how I knew about it. But it really had a different quality. Um, in the book, at one point, I quote um, uh, another writer who likens it to basically um, an amateur uh, performance um, by some very well-meaning um, but not entirely talented um, people in a, you know, a, a small town somewhere in, in England. And that really was the atmosphere. It was yeah. very unusual in that sense. And there was very little, there was a backdrop, but otherwise there wasn't much scenery. There was no production number. And instead of a big cast, 
as um, American musicals that I was used to had. It was basically just about 20 people doubling, tripling, and so on all the way along. So um, the experience is different. I wouldn't say uh, more interesting, but I wouldn't say less interesting either. It's just if you really love musicals, at a certain point, you've done all the American ones, and you've got to expand. And here's this whole other... Um, territory that you can move into and I, I i remember i came rather late to realizing that there are all these cast albums and yeah. of course by that time i was a grown-up and i could go to england by myself for theater trips which i did constantly and the shows are different there's no question the the talent is different everything has a, a it's, it's the musical with a bit of spin shall we say yeah. and rather than guts it's about charm. The American musical is about guts. Or I, I don't know anymore, but the ones I was used to when I was growing up, that everything was belted out at you, and, and people felt very intensely about what they were doing. You know, 76 trombones. But the British musical is, is more about charm. Yeah, yeah. And how do you find that the British musical plays a different role in British culture than the American one in American culture? Oh, what an interesting question. I never thought of it that way. Let's let's consider. Well, well, for instance, we all know that there are these um, cult musicals in America. Now, I don't know where they began, but for instance, Flaholi was always a cult musical, especially when the album was out of print for so long. People would talk about it. You, you could get, always get the sheet music at Shermer's, and you could play it on the piano, and you could talk, talk to people who had actually seen it, that kind of thing. Um, are there cult musicals in Britain, for instance? Yes. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I think maybe Valmuth was. That's Sandy Wilson, the author of The Boyfriend, uh, um, in a very sexy mood with a, a really crazy, um, almost violently gay story. Something shocking in its day. When, when was that? I think 1958. And uh, that was cer certainly um, something to, because it has a wonderful score. And people who had seen it would never stop talking about it. Zulika also, I think, was a cult musical from Max Beerbohm's novel, Zulika Dobson. But different um, in the culture. Yes, here's another difference. In America, even the intellectuals, to a certain extent, like musicals, or at least will put up with them, and under certain circumstances, will adopt them. A chorus line, for instance. That was a musical that attracted intellectuals writing think pieces and so on. I think because basically they don't trust or like musicals, and a chorus line seems so different that they could regard it as the anti-musical. Now let's cross the, the Atlantic. In England, intellectuals despise the musical, yes. except for Sondheim, and they will not budge on that. If a Sondheim show opens, they will go to see it, and they will enjoy it. But these are the people that normally go to Shakespeare, they go to uh, anything the National Theatre puts on, um, something with an important actor or actress in it, they will see, but they will not go to musicals, and they laugh at the notion of anyone taking a musical seriously. Yes. So there, there are major differences in how um, um, their culture reacts to musicals. Yeah, yeah. And so how did you find that your research process changed for this book? Was it in different places that you found the information? Um, no, not especially. It's always the same thing. Upstairs at Lincoln Center, you go yeah. to the archives on the third floor. See, that's, you know, I should have realized that when you asked about quarantine. It was before quarantine because I didn't have any problem oh. going up there. Um, the, the, um, um, the upstairs at Lincoln Center is only recently reopened, and you have to make an appointment to get up there. No, I, I would say it's, it's not any different. Now, I have a tremendous library of 
of um, cast albums. There are very few cast albums of English musicals that I don't have, and their cast albums go all the way back to Floridora, believe it or not. And, and that's you know ni- that's 1900, and in the 1920s when we did not have original cast albums at all, they routinely put together uh, uh, cast albums. For instance, Showboat did not get a cast album here, although at the time of the 32 revival, it did get an album, shall we say, but it wasn't theatrical at all. And uh, over in England, Showboat at Drury Lane did get a cast album. So yeah. there was a lot for me to work with. They're hard to get a hold of, of course, and most of them aren't even none. I have, I have my ways, shall we say. <laughs> yes. But um, ultimately, you can track everything down. There's just one problem. They don't publish a lot of scripts. Oh. Very few scripts have been published. So, uh, you know, in, to a certain extent, that was a problem. And I couldn't depend, <coughs> excuse me, on the critics because, as I could, um, um, upstairs at Lincoln Center, they have a microfilm of all the first night reviews going back to, I think, maybe 1919, something like that. So I, and I've gone through them all and I've taken all my notes. And back in those days, the critics regarded their job as being more repertorial yeah. than, shall we say, um, um, appreciative. So that they, it, it was news. They had to tell you what happened, what it looked like, what happened at this point. How did that number work out? Which was very, very useful. I'm not interested in their opinions. You know, I yeah. don't care what, whether they liked it or they didn't like it. Just tell me what happened on the stage. And they were very good at that. The um, English critics aren't. So that was no help. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so do you find it significant that the first sort of musical, as we would consider it, or the first sort of predecessor, The Beggar's Opera, was an English show? Well, it's interesting that, you know, everyone says, and the great American form is the musical, and the Americans invented the musical. Well, the Americans didn't invent the musical. And, I mean, in, in terms of the musical as we know it, the Beggar's Opera isn't just, you know, some primitive uh, um, suggestion of a musical. It's a musical. Yeah. It has a very integrated score. And that's, let's see, 1728. When's the first American truly integrated musical? It's Evangeline, 1874, I think. But not till it toured for a while. Not till it came back to New York in, I think, 1878, by which time it, it its score had enlarged greatly. Evangeline is probably the first full-scale um, score, uh, more or less integrated, more or less integrated, and look at look at that. It's like 150 years later. Yes, yes. So the British definitely not only invented the, the musical, but they heavily influenced uh, American musicals because in the 19th century, all these shows that we think of as musicals, if, if you read the history books, this musical, that musical, a lot of those weren't musicals at all. They were plays with like four songs. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason why they're touted as musicals is, I have to say this, the people who wrote those books didn't do their homework. <laughs> yes, yeah. And so you brought up an interesting point with Salad Days, and how many of the shows discussed in this book do you think you've seen, and does it change anything when you've seen a show that you're writing about? Oh, absolutely. Because, mm-hmm. first of all, it gives you a chance to bring the reader into the theater with you so to say. And, you know, like, for instance, this has always stuck with me, although I, I, it, it's only memory, because the script wasn't published, the number was not done on television. There was a flop musical called Donnybrook in something like 61, which I saw, and I vividly remember, there was a, uh, Sondheim loves this number, it's called Sad Was the Day, Susan Johnson is a Widow, and 
she runs a bar, as she always does. Every time Susan Johnson was in a in a um, in a musical, she was you know the mistress of a cabaret or something. Even Whoop Up, same thing. Glenda's Place was her opening number. But uh, that was the day. Was this mock lament of a widow, making fun really of her hideous husband, kind of thing. And at the end, the, the coda of the song, she's kind of standing there facing the audience, and the chorus is behind her in her tavern or whatever it is. And they sing something like, poor Kathy Carey, she should remarry. And Susan Johnson went, amen. And the chorus put their hands over their hearts and sang in very religious tones, amen. And she turned around, saw what they did, and quickly changed to look at just as you know pious as, as they oh. did. And that's something you're never going to get from any documentation yeah. or anything you find in the library. That comes because you saw the show and you recall that moment. And when you're talking about the show, you want to bring that in so that the reader has some, some taste of the experience of having seen it, even though, of course, he or she hasn't. And how much have you been able to find of photography from these early British museums? Um, photographs. Well, if, uh, yes. Um, books that have preceded me have published a lot. And there are posters and, and, and there are sheet music covers, although the, their sheet music isn't as, as attractive as ours. <laughs> Often it's just a design and not a real, um, not any kind of key art, which yeah. is always so helpful. Um, yeah. There was a lot of it, but I, I always go my own way with my... Um, I, did uh, Oxford um, show you the picture insert by any chance? Oh, no, they didn't. Just the, just the text. Okay. Well, the, but. my picture inserts are, are never what you would expect. I do that deliberately because you don't want to see the same old stuff that you've yeah. seen in other books. And you don't want to see just, oh, this scene and that scene. You want something that, that um, uh, adds to the experience in a, in a playful way. So, for instance, one of the... Uh, illustrations in my the picture insert for Pick a Pocket or Two is the sheet music to The Lambeth Walk Oh, from Me and My Girl. But on the back of the sheet music, there were actually instructions on how to dance this new dance sensation, The Lambeth Walk. So I used both the cover and the back cover. So that you do, if, just in case you want to form a Lambeth Walk Club and, and, you know, have a Lambeth Walk contest, there it is. There are the instructions. And I have to say, looking at them, they're very authentic. That is what they were doing back in the old days. So uh, I never have any problem finding um, um, pictures that, uh, that, uh, that add to the experience in the way that I want them to. I, I, I definitely don't want, um, you know, like uh, the caption is left to right, name, name, name. That's just so boring. Yeah. I want pictures that, that illustrate things that I'm talking about in the book and are not something that, that uh, repeats anything in the book. For instance, with the Beggar's Opera, that starts the picture insert, and the first view, I must admit, is the standard shot you always get of the whole cast on stage. You've seen it many times. But when you turn the page, the next thing you see is a movie still from Peter Brooks, film of the Beggar's Opera, and you see Laurence Olivier as Mac Heath riding up a hill and... What he's facing is the body of an outlaw like himself who has been hanged. And he's encased in this kind of, I don't know what to call it, a kind of body jail. It, it, he's in, I'm not even going to try to describe it. It's terrifying. Although yeah. luckily he's dead, so he can't know at this point. And I'm pointing out that, you know, this isn't just uh, mad romance. You know, uh, McKeith and Polly, he's facing several times, in fact, in the show. He's facing either transportation or being hanged. In fact, they speak about hanging him. And he's almost hanged at the very end, except he's kind of pardoned in a deus ex machina.
in a way. So the pictures add to the um, the reading experience. They they do things that you can't do as a writer. There are certain things that pictures can do that writing can't. When I got the idea for a, a book on Rodgers and Hammerstein, I knew it had to be a coffee table book because I had certain ideas about what the pictures could do. And for instance, with Allegro, because each Rodgers and Hammerstein show had its own chapter, with Allegro, instead of wasting the reader's time with a boring synopsis that he wouldn't read anyway, I just started going scene by scene with these photographs of the original production, one after the other in story order, so that the captions for each picture took you through the story. And I had snapshots from, that I got from the Rodgers and Hammerstein office from uh, somebody who saw the show in its Boston tryout. Um. And he took his little camera in with him, and he got shots that you otherwise have never seen. And it's such an interesting show. It's so visual and bizarre. There's no other way to cover it. You can't just write about Allegro. You have to show Allegro. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And so one of the interesting things you say early in the book is about Gilbert and Sullivan and about how they each had sort of a different instinct for the shows they wanted to write. And I'm wondering if you could explain that to people who are listening about the different shows well, that they... Yes, uh, it, it's possible that the best partnerships, best collaborations in art are uh, between two people who don't think alike because they kind of uh, inspire each other, even if they're angry all the time. They, you know, it's, if two people think very much alike, Candor and Ned, for instance, they can still come up with wonderful shows, don't get me wrong. But there's something very exciting about two people fighting all the time about what a show is going to be. It just brings out the... Um, they're, they're trying to top each other. And so the, the works themselves end up being more interesting for that reason. With Gilbert and Sullivan, you had um, the word man, Gilbert, was basically a satirist. And the composer, Sullivan, was a, a romantic. And that leads to an interesting tension in their works. Because they are funny, but they're also very touching. The music is extraordinary. Sullivan was one of the greatest composers England has ever produced, although ironically, when he did the classical stuff, you know, the concerto and the opera, Ivanhoe, for instance, they weren't remotely as good as the music he wrote with Gilbert. And maybe that's because the two of them just never saw eye to eye about anything. Yes, yes. And so do you think that if Sullivan's way had sort of prevailed more that the shows wouldn't have been as successful? Hmm. I, no, I, no I, I don't think so. I don't think so. It's hard to say for certain. The way they worked is that Gilbert wrote the words and then Sullivan set them to music. So it's not as though he, you know, he couldn't make Gilbert be different, so to say. He couldn't, um, there the words are in front of him, the, you know, the spoken words and then the, the song. So he, you know, he did his best and he was a genius. So they came out really, really wonderfully. I was just listening to uh, The Omen of the Guard just a few nights ago. And I thought, God, this is this is opera. This is what Ivanhoe should have sounded like. Yeah. Sullivan's Ivanhoe was a bore, I'm sorry to say. It really is. Yeah. And there's many Sullivan um, um, buffs, and they'd never want to admit it. But Ivanhoe just, you know, it doesn't cut it. It really doesn't. And something about Gilbert handing him the libretto and saying, here it is, said it. That worked. That worked for Sullivan. I don't know why it didn't work on Ivanhoe. Yeah. With a different collaborator, by the way. Yeah. 
And so you mentioned earlier about the difference between American musicals and British musicals, but what do you think is the difference between American stars and British stars in terms of what makes one? Or well, it's hard to say, because that's very abstract. One thing I can say is ours is a much larger country, so the talent pool is larger. Yeah. Talent pool for um, casting musicals in England is vastly smaller you know, in the West End than what we have on Broadway. And as for, uh, as for the quality of the, well, it's, it's just two different things, I guess. I mean, on one hand, you have Jack Buchanan and Gertrude Lawrence over there. On the other hand, you have Ethel Merman over here. I mean, you can see the difference in energy yeah. is, yeah. is, you know, and, and, and the, the, the blasting the wonderful blasting of the songs into the... Merman had wonderful diction, but also in those days before a miking, even if you were in the back of the theater, you could hear her. Uh, I mean, you could make out the words she was saying. Uh, yeah. When I started going on Saturday afternoon by myself, it was a given that if you were... You know, I was on, a, on my allowance, so I, I always bought the cheapest seats. Uh, on a Saturday matinee, it would usually be $2 dollars and 30 cents and you'd be in the last row of the 46th street theater and you knew that you'd miss half the words that that was just part of it that's why you were paying less yes. you're getting less of a show it wasn't just that you couldn't see as well because you were all the way back and that's a big theater too and you know with merman you, you never miss out on that and, and that's not true of buchanan or lawrence or you yeah. know i i uh, I don't want to make any final statement about this. It's just uh, with, with such a larger country as ours, you do get um, more choice in the people that you um, cast and, and as they develop. Because Merman wasn't always Merman. You know, she started and they loved it and they started writing roles around her for her and so she became more of what she was. Yes. You know, till finally, at, at the time of Panama Hattie, she made the cover of Time magazine. Which was like the top at, yeah. in those days. That was what 1940, 41. That, you, you, there was nothing higher in the culture, not even the cover of Life, because they often put strange people on the cover of Life. <laughs> like for Allegro, they put three of the chorus girls on the cover rather than the oh. principals. But Time was always concerned with celebrity. Yes, yeah. And so some of the stars in England you talk about, like Gertrude Lawrence and some others that you say might not be as talented by our standards, but had personalities that were appealing? And what do you think that that sort of says about England and English well, theater? I, I wouldn't say they were less talented. I mean, Gertrude Lawrence was as talented as anyone. She was magical, you know, yeah. everyone who saw her. Actually, I did, but I was so young that I, I'm afraid, you know, I, I can't um, I can't comment, really. I, okay. I, I remember bits of that show, and I, I, I do remember the end, but of course she was kind of prone on, on the king's bed, facing upstage, so I, I, I didn't get much of a view. I, yeah. I, it, it's just a different kind of talent. It's more charming yeah. than yeah. intense. They, you know, the people in English musicals don't generally, they're not playing for the high stakes that people are playing for in, in American shows. For instance, you'd never have a British musical based on the play of Chicago. Yes. You could never have that kind of thing. It, it just doesn't happen there. It's not the way they see the purpose of art. Yeah. But I won't say that the talent is, is less. It's just different. Yeah, yeah. And so when you're writing in about 200 pages about all of the 
British musicals, then there must be some that you have to leave out. And so how do you pick the ones to include? And are there any you wish you could have included? No, no, I, I included everything I needed to. Um, it, uh, I, I didn't leave out anything that I regard as important. Let's put it that way. It, you know, it's, it's not so much what you include. It's what you concentrate on and what you mention more or less in passing. You know, sometimes there are shows where you don't really have that much to say about them, even if they're um, famous, even if they're successful. But um, sometimes there are shows that, um, in, in this case, it would be Johnny the Priest. Show closed in, I think, a week or two. But I find it fascinating. And I, it was interesting to talk about. Plus, I think people who read these books want to find out about things they don't already know. They're not so much interested in hearing... Uh, you know, a lot of details about Evita, for instance. They know Evita. Yeah, yeah. And how did you sort of go about connecting British musicals to British history? To well, um, to a certain extent, but to the for the most part, I, I don't want to bring a whole lot of that in. There are other writers, there are other books that handle that stuff. Um, I'm the expert in the musical, so why don't I concentrate on that and and and. Um, um, uh, concentrate my energy on on the musical and and um, not, not worry about um, the outer framework of history beyond um, certain for you know perfunctory comments such as reminding people how um, when blitz the Lionel Bart musical uh, what is that 61 I think 61 or two when that was produced I, I point out how close it was in time to the actual war. And, you know, when I was, I think I mentioned this in the book, I'm not positive, when I was um, on that first trip with my parents when I saw Salad Days, one thing that, that shocked me was as we were riding around all the time, constantly in London, you saw blocks that were basically nothing. There was nothing there but gravel. They had cleared away the rubble of the Blitz. Yeah. And even then, that was 1958, they still hadn't replaced any, they hadn't replaced the the wrecked buildings with anything. They'd simply taken them away. And as I say, there was just gravel or grass, wild grass growing there. Block after block after block. Not just in the East End, because we, you know, we were American tourists. We weren't in the East End. Yeah. We were in downtown, so to say, the West End. Then there was a lot of that there. Yeah, yeah. And so you talk about a period in English theater, I believe the 20s to the 50s, where you were saying there wasn't a lot of advancement in musicals. And why do you think that that was at that particular well, time? Well, I, I make some suggestions. Uh, again, this is abstract. One reason why is I, there, was a, um, there was a shortage, really, of the kind of writers for lyrics and books. They had good composers, but they didn't have a lot of good word people. So there was a shortage there. Um, another thing was there was a lack of influence of black artists. One of the things I, I noticed when I was uh, taking my notes on the microfilm um, in, uh, upstairs in Lincoln Center of all the uh, first night reviews is that throughout the 20s, there were a great many black musicals. It's forgotten now. It wasn't just Shuffle Along. There were about 25 of them. Yeah. And the critics constantly said, the dancing is so much better here than it is in, you know, the regular white musicals. It's because the choreographers of white musicals had kind of run out of ideas. They were doing the same thing over and over again, whereas the black shows always had um, new styles. Yeah. And um, obviously, eventually, white choreographers started to learn from them. Also, there was an infusion of ballet in the 1930s, especially, into the... Uh, uh, 
American musical, and there wasn't in England. There, there are all kinds of reasons why, but the main thing you notice, the bottom line, is that in the 1930s, there are shows like Of the I Sing or The Cradle Will Rock or um, Music in the Air, The Cat and the Fiddle, musicals that really stand out for quality, and there isn't a lot of that in England. Yeah, yeah. And so one of the one of my favorite sections of the book was about Noel Coward, and I'd be curious to know, do you think that his music and his musicals are his cramming achievement, or do you think that his plays and written things are more representative? Well, uh, it, uh, let's see. Uh, of the plays, uh, beyond um, Private Lives and Blythe Spirit, <clears throat> they're very fragile, and they depend so much on the performing talent. If they're not done in exactly the right way, which is brittle and fast and and with a, a kind of clever aura, they really aren't interesting at all. And they keep they keep getting revived because they're basically reviving his name. But there are a number of his plays where when you read them, they seem kind of dead on the page. And yeah. if you see a revival that isn't top-notch, it, it really doesn't play that well at all. The actors have to force the laughs. Yes. As for his musicals, Basically, except for, I would say, Sail Away, which is deliberately written to, to seem trendy and up-to-date and American, by the way. His musicals, except for um, Bittersweet, they're more or less unrevivable. A lot of them are reviews. Reviews can't be revived to any extent. And th there's a certain humdrum quality about them. And they, they all, there's a lot of sameness to them, too. They always have, he loved those set change numbers where, like, um, two or three or four people come out and sing a number that really has nothing to do with anything. And it certainly isn't, isn't grounded in the plot. They just come out and sing the song. Audience loves it, but you never get away with that today in America. Both his songs that are going to last, not his shows, yeah. not his musicals. The songs themselves are still very popular. They're done all the time. Everyone loves to sing them. They're always getting recorded. You know, Chrissy Nubersall sings Noel Coward. I mean, she's wrong for the material, but they're such wonderful songs no one can resist. Yes. But I don't know that the musicals have... As far as that goes, Bittersweet is a wonderful score, but it's not as if the show gets done all the time. Yeah, that's true. And so how did Noel Coward go, as you describe it in the book, from being written out and complaining about the current writers to being a national treasure in England, as he once was? Yes, it was actually one production, and it was for a change. Um, one, of his, one of his comedies was given the most amazingly, shall we say, clever revival of the National Theater. Coward directed it himself. Maggie Smith was in it. I don't remember the rest of the cast. The play was Hay Fever. Oh. And everyone in the theater thought, hey, this is good. Yeah. You know what? Why did, why did we drop him? This is a wonderful entertainment. And from then on, it just got bigger and bigger. Yeah. Yeah. And so Sail Away was the show you said that was his hit in America. Do you think that... It no, it, it wasn't a hit. I, I think it's a good show. But no, it, it, it only ran about, I think, four months. Oh. And it started great. I mean, out of town, it was a sellout. All the celebrities showed up. The Lunts come. Judy Garland comes. Everyone's talking about these, the show. And it opens. And once again, the American critics just, they don't care for the kind of thing that he does. Yeah. And it also, it's not the greatest show on earth, but I think it's a good one. And Elaine Stritch was, you know, if you like her, she was in a great role. She was in the role yes, of her yep. career, basically. And um, 
and then it went to London, and there, there, there it ran, I think, five months, again with, with Elaine, and um, did a little better there, but still, it, it's not, I don't know, somehow it's not strong enough. Yeah, but yeah. I, I think it's good. It's a good show, and I did see a, a kind of concert revival of it with Stretch again. Oh, at um, at, at that little um, upstairs at that little theater, I think it's called Wild Recital Hall, unless somebody gave them a million dollars and they renamed it. <laughs> it's the one that's in Carnegie Hall. Everyone was sitting in chairs. It's very sedentary. Oh, yeah. Normally, when they do these concerts now, everyone's walking around and you know encores style. Yeah. Now this was everyone sitting there and. And, and uh, it, it, it was a dead um, um, reading of a really quite lively show. It, 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 that was directed by Joe Layton. Well, actually, it was directed by Coward, but, but Layton was the choreographer, and he, he had a lot to do with how the show moved. It was a very, very lively, interesting, colorful, wild show. Not Maybe not wild enough, but good enough, certainly. And he, he certainly threw off... His uh, usual things. There was none of that in one, um, you know, uh, trio or, or quartet that that uh, I just mentioned earlier. Nothing like that at all. And he didn't have the opening chorus of everyone saying, "Oh, what a century it's been!" Or "Here we are in Darjeeling." He always does those those time and place setting numbers, which are so old fashioned. Yeah. Uh, he always did, I should say. He isn't doing them now. And I I think. Another thing that keeps him alive are all those funny stories about him. Yeah. Anytime you write about the theater, you want to include three or four coward stories because he's just so, he really thinks fast on his feet. My favorite one of them all, in fact, is Sail Away because when they were out of town and this is, they started in Boston, they went to Philadelphia. A lot of changes, lot of changes. And when a show is out of town and there are a lot of changes, there are many rumors such as who's going to get fired or whose billing will change. And one rumor was that the soubrette was going to have her name last in a box after the word and, with the word and in front of it. And Stritch confronted Coward. And she said, is it true? Because Sailaway has a lot of principles. And Elaine Stritch still did not have star billing. It was her name was below the title, but it was larger than. And then there was a parade of name, 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 and she had heard, and it would say "and" with the soubrette's name in the box. So she says to Coward, "Is the rumor true that name is going to have her name last in a box with the word "and" in front of it?" And he said, "She ha- shall have her name last in a box with the word but in front of it." I mean, I couldn't think that fast. Yes. Yeah. So the, the coward stories and the coward songs are going to live on, but I don't know if they're, they're ever going to do his musicals again. Yeah, yeah. And do you notice a difference between Sail Away and The Girl Who Came to Supper, his sort of American musicals from his British musicals? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, The Girl Who Came to Supper has an operetta-ish tinge to it. And it did have a soprano lead, uh, Florence Henderson, as opposed to Elaine Stritch, who's a bass. And um, it, it did have that... Um, um, it did have a, a, a not entirely appealing leading man, Jose Ferrer, Ferrer excuse me, in a, in a beard kind of thing. I, it, it, it's hard to say. That's a more old-fashioned show for Coward, the girl who came to supper. Sail Away was when he really was trying to reinvent himself with a very fast, sharp, modern show. Even some of the songs are very up-to-date for 1962 or whatever year it was. And that's not true of The Girl Who Came to Supper. That's the old-fashioned coward. I like it. 
I must admit. I, I, it's an enjoyable score, but yeah, I don't know, the show had a kind of, you know, after My Fair Lady, there were a number of shows that sort of did that, more or less, kind of thing. And that that was a problem, too. Also, um, President Kennedy had just been shot. The show opened right after, so no one was in the mood to go to see a musical or anything else, for that matter. Yeah, yeah. It was bad timing. And one recurring theme that comes up in your book is that many of the writers you talk about were gay, Coward and Ivor Novello. And do you think that that influenced their work and influenced the musical theater in general? Well, I think if you're gay, it's always going to influence everything you do. It's just, you know, I hear these people say, gay is just what I am. It's not, I don't, I'm not a professional gay. I mean, I, I just think that's silly. Of course you are. Everyone who is gay is. Everyone who is different is a professional different. And there are plenty of different ways of being different. Believe me, it isn't just gay. But I, I definitely think so. I, I, for instance, I don't think a straight man would have ever come up with the um, incredibly precious character names that, that, um, a coward always comes up with both in musicals and in straight plays they always have that little twist you know like Elliot's name is E-L-Y-O-T you know that's that kind of thing and and um, the, the names are I, I can't think of them all offhand but they do have a certain minty shall we say quality they're uh, let's say they're a little bit swish I suppose I don't think that's true though of Novello so much yeah but he was writing spectacles, and that all, that calls for a different uh, approach to you know every aspect of you know you're you're concerned about getting the um, the train crash right you know or the boat explosion right and and that kind of thing. But um, they both worked. I mean, just I I don't see how being gay doesn't affect um, the kind of the book I'm writing now is Gays on Broadway, oh. and I'm constantly going going into. Um, what are sure to be controversial generalizations of what straight art is and, and what gay art is. And, of course, that's just my opinion. Uh, you know, other people will have a different opinion. But I, I think it definitely does affect, sure. Yeah, yeah. And you say about the shows of Ivor Novello that they're both wonderful and terrible at the same time. And what do you sort of mean by that, for those the who don't wonderful know? wonderful in here's in the score. The songs are really, they're just lovely. And they're fun, and they're even though they very seldom have anything to do in an important way with the action. And that was his style, you know. His his love songs are all interchangeable, um, and and the songs again, the songs are going to live on. The shows are are what the the stories are so over the top. They they are spectacles, and they're filled with coincidence. And and if, for instance, he sees a great there's going to be a great gypsy scene. And there'll be a gypsy wedding. Now, how do I get my principles from the shipwreck to the gypsy camp? Well, they just go there, kind of thing. That's the kind of show he would write. And they are unrevivable for that reason. They, yeah, I've read a few of the scripts, actually. A few were published, and I found a few upstairs at the library. And they're unbelievably terrible. Oh, they're, yeah. just, they're just absurd. I mean, I, they're lovable in that sense, because it's, it's just... The, the, the one that works, actually, is Perchance to Dream. That's in a different style from his other operettas. I'm just talking about the operettas now, not the, not the musical comedies that he wrote before that. This is starting in 1935 and going on to his death in the early 50s. And Perchance to Dream is so busy with its three different generations of couples, and they're played by the same two people. First couple 
He does. Second couple, she kills herself. Uh, it, during intermission, though, it's not on stage. And the third couple finally do. It, this is just like uh, Maytime and a, a number of other European operettas. That um, uh, Maytime actually is an American operetta, but it's based on a, a German one. And the, the idea that you have three generations of couples, but the happy ending doesn't come until the third couple. The first two, it, it's quite sad. So he's so busy with that. He didn't have a chance to have people running around. You know, there was no... Uh, a train, train wreck and a ship explosion and another one has an earthquake there's nothing like that and in fact they're not moving around it basically all takes place in one setting because it's all, all in the same it's the uh, the house is called Hunter's Moon and I guess they're all, uh, it's all owned by various people in the show and, and the score is wonderful and it's more um, attuned to the story than his other um, uh, scores are so that that's exceptional but otherwise the the, the shows as shows are just absurd yeah. but the, the music as music is quite wonderful and so you make an interesting quick comment about a show in the book which is you say about charlie girl that it was the show that nobody liked but it ran for five years so how did that sort of happen it's like, uh, they're still asking that in London today. <laughs> no one knows. The critics called it the worst thing that ever lived. I have never met anyone who had any um, respect for. Uh, now I forget her name. This is my, this is age speaking. Um, the the star and um, the, it, it, there's a cast album, so you can hear for yourself. It's a perfectly pleasant score of, of no you know great importance whatsoever. And. I remember I was in London a, a number of times during that long run. It, it was playing at the um, the Adelphi, so I was, which is in the Strand. I was right near the Vaudeville Theater, which is where I saw Salad Days. So I was constantly passing it, and I, it never occurred to me to. I was I saw everything else that was playing on those trips. I never wanted to see Charlie Girl. I, I basically what the English will say in answer to that question is um, bus parties. That is um, people in a town that's not terribly far from London, and it's called something else, it's not called bus parties, but that's what they are, and they all sign up, and they all have their tickets, and it's like a package, and they get, they all get on the bus, and the bus takes them to London, and they see the show, and then, I don't know, maybe there's a dinner as well, but then the bus takes them back to where they go, and a lot of people, um, you know, there are a lot of people that live in the environs of London, not, not to mention London itself, so I, I don't know if they're five years worth exactly, I don't think, I, I remember speaking a number of times to smart theater going Londoners and they would say you know I never knew anyone who saw that show <laughs> so no no one can figure out why it ran so long yeah. and there's no explanation it's just one of those things and so how did the British musical become revitalized in the 60s after the dark period well I, I would say there, there's one moment of demarcation which is Oliver Oliver was at a time when people were saying the American musical has completely taken over Oklahoma, Carousel, the Pajama Game, all these hit shows, and the English musical looked so tawdry and unambitious next to them. And suddenly the show turns up that is so thoroughly British in every way it owes nothing to the American musical. If, if somehow or other... Lyle Bard had written Oliver for Broadway production originally. It would have looked totally different in every way. It wouldn't have had that amazing 
of history-making set that was so bizarre and strange. Uh, it would have had production numbers. There were, you know, there really is no choreography in Oliver. It's it's like when people dance, the director says, "Oh, just move around and and do a little of this and that." The idea was to make it. They didn't want, for instance, the chorus to seem like people in a musical. They wanted the chorus to seem like people who live in London at the time that Oliver takes place. Yeah, yeah. And that I, that was that show such a big hit. And of course, the other Lionel Bart shows, the next two that were so wonderful too, but not the the terrible flop on on Robin Hood that followed. Mm-hmm. Uh, there started to be a new feeling that the English should go for what is the, the British, excuse me, should go for what is British in theater and not worry about imitating America because there were there were moments where shows had things in them that were really an imitation of the American style and there was one show grab me a gondola 1958 that really was an an attempt by Britons to write an American style show again very brassy and kind of vulgar they they, they sort of messed up a bit it was a hit by the way so I, a year and a half in fact so I don't think I don't think you could say they messed up, but it's not, it, it isn't really American at all. It's just, you can see what they were working toward, but they did, they went off in a different direction. In other words, they thought, oh, loud and vulgar, that's the recipe. That actually isn't. You know, you look at Gypsy or West Side Story, loud and vulgar is not what they are. That's true. That's true. That's what they got out of it, I guess. That's what they, their takeaway of the American musical is that, well, the British musical is so charming, and they all seem to be based on plays by James M. Barry. And then in comes, you know, the pajama game, and everyone is so front-footed about what he or she wants. And I think they mistook what the American style is. And now that we're talking about vulgarity, how did the sort of British opinion on that change from them being afraid to even say the title of a show with the word damn in it to, like, Valmouth, let's say? Uh, Again, it's not clear how that happened, because a lot of the critics uh, reviewing Valmouth expressed uh, puzzlement, shall we say, that such a, let's just say, risque show was not censored by the by the Lord Chamberlain, who still had the power to yeah. withhold the license of the uh, of the theater, if if he wanted to, I, I I don't know how that happened. It might be that once again you had someone who was so thick headed that he just didn't get all the double meanings. Yeah, yeah. And so, are there British musicals you think would have been successful on Broadway, but they never transferred? No, I I think the ones that they they did did not bring over. It was for a good reason. They realized that they were, it was just, one I would question is Billy, which was a two-year hit at Drury Lane. That's when Michael Crawford really emerged as a big star, based on Billy Lyre. And everyone was wondering, why isn't that, why are there no plans to bring that over? And um, it it didn't come over, and it's hard to say whether it would have worked or not. It was very dark. It's a dark show, and it does not end happily at all. Yeah. I mean, it's a great great role for the lead. Crawford would have had a tremendous success, a personal success. Uh, I'm not, I don't know how the, the show would have done. It's, it's hard to say. I, I think they were smart in often not bringing over shows. On the other hand, both Valmouth and Saladays came here when they were new. They played off-Broadway and they did not succeed. Yeah. And so going back to um, Oliver, how did that show sort of reinvent set design, which you were saying that it did in your... 
<laughs> well, it, it, it's hard to explain, but it's not realistic. It, it, you know, in those days, musicals always had, they don't necessarily now, but they always had very realistic scenery. And, you know, um, the, when the set changed, it changed from houses on a street to uh, a country meadow, whatever. It always looked like what it was. Oliver, basically, I'm, I'm simplifying greatly. First of all, all the lighting equipment above the stage was um, not hidden. It was very open. They weren't pretending. It was always Brechtian. They, they weren't pretending that it isn't a show. And the, the, the main um, set elements were um, two huge wooden structures on either side of the stage that would revolve a bit and could turn into, you know, whatever you needed. But they still were kind of abstract. Yeah. And maybe something would come down from the flies. Like, for instance, when it was the time for the Undertaker's Parlor, they moved, and you were walking through, the, the characters are walking through London, um, so to say, and down from the flies comes, I think, a couple of coffins. So now you know where you are. But they, nothing ever looked uh, realistic. The idea was to, it was very stylized. And when I describe it, it sounds very weird, but it's just played wonderfully. Yeah. And so I'd be curious to know, in your opinions about both American and British theatre, how would you define the Golden Age, if there was one? Well, if... there certainly was one in America. My idea of the Golden Age is about 1920 to 1979, let's say. I think things started to fall apart after that. And that, of course, was the great time of, you know, Gershwin, Rogers and Hart, Rogers and Hammerstein, Cole Porter, all these great people. And Sondheim, too. Um, in England, was there a golden age? No, I, I you know, I, I, I'm not sure. It, it, yeah. depend, it depends on how you look at it. I suppose some people would regard the Edwardian musical, the, you know, the, the Gaiety shows, as a golden age. It didn't last very long. I, 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 I think a lot of other people would not so regard. I, I don't know that there is any specific golden age for the British musical. Yeah. And there were people in America who griped about what is sometimes called the British invasion, but how do you see that from a British perspective? Do you think that that was... Well, it's just suddenly this new thing turned up, which is, well, we call it pop opera. Actually, the pop operas are different, um, not just as a group from other shows, but different from each other. I mean, if you think about it, Jesus Christ Superstar superstar and the show that succeeded in Evita are extremely different in the way the music sounds extremely different and also different in in how the the show is staged for instance Evita is always supposed to be done pretty much as how Prince originally staged it whereas Jesus Christ superstar is different every time every time you attend it it's completely different and it can be arena style and it, I, I've seen all kinds of crazy things done with it not least the, you know the original Broadway production talk about crazy but I, I think British Invasion well it was I mean they were and they were huge hits Cats yeah. and Phantom of the Opera gigantic hits I remember when I got my hands on the um, London the LP it was a double LP album of the Phantom of the Opera and the libretto that came with it, the, the booklet, had the um, entire show, not just what you heard on the album. So you, you could really figure out what the show was like. And looking at all these magical things and wondering how they were staged, I couldn't wait to see it. But I remember thinking, this is wonderful music. This is big romantic stuff. And everybody is going to hate it. And it's going to run forever. So it's like Charlie Girl, except even more so. I mean, who is going? If, if everybody hates it, who is going to that show? 
And so when would you, when do you say the tradition of pop opera started or the era of pop operas? And do you think that it was a natural progression for the theater or? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, pop opera, I mean, The Most Happy Fella is a pop opera, though it's never called that. It's basically an opera. There's very little dialogue, and it's quite um, um, emotionally um, uh, uplifting in the way that opera often is. And um, operas were staged on Broadway, too. Uh, Benjamin Britten's um, The Rape of Lucretia was done at the Ziegfeld in 1948, I think it was. Giorgio Tozzi and Kitty Carlisle. A very strange staging. It was two casts. One of opera singers, and one of you know, kind of ballet actor people who would emote, you know, and the, the opera singers would stand there and the other cast would, it's hard to describe, very, very strange show. I didn't see it, it was before my time. But, um, uh, so uh, the idea of opera in, in commercial precincts was always around, always around. And then this thing happened, which is Jesus Christ Superstar. This, this double album that Somebody said, why don't we stage this? Of course, a lot of people were doing that. They, they spent something like a million dollars shutting down all kinds of bootleg productions before the Broadway Jesus Christ Superstar opened up. But uh, it, it's just, you, it's like saying, where do you get the idea for a book? These things just happen. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't think it's any, you know, I, it's, it's not as though people are, they're in their thinking room. And someone says, we've got to have a hit. What kind of show shall we do? Hmm. Someone says, well, how about this? No. Someone says, well, how about that? No. Someone says, let's do the Bible as a rock opera. Yes, says everyone. You know, it doesn't happen that way. It's, it's much more, um, it, it, it's multidimensional, or it's, uh, again, my favorite word, because it always gets you out of a scrape. It's abstract. Yeah. You know, no one knows where it comes from. It's just there. One one minute it's not there, and the next minute it is. Yeah. And I, I, it, it did seem like a movement because there was one, and then there was another. There was the third, and then there was the fourth. And then they started flopping because I think the wrong people were writing them. And look what happened to Andrew Lloyd Webber here. I, I yeah. saw a, a show he did. Eventually he played London, and it was a success. But Whistle Down the Wind started, you know, in D.C. It was an out-of-town tryout headed for Broadway, and it did not come in. How but it was very incoherently, it was an incoherent staging. It was, it was really quite terrible, actually. It's not a bad score. And a show you say that broke the rules, that was sort of a pop opera, was Blood Brothers. And so how did that exactly break the rules? Well, I wouldn't call that a pop opera. It, it, it broke the rules in that it, it's constantly doing things that no musical had ever done before. For instance, there's this number, Marilyn Monroe. It's, it comes up several times, I think four times during the continuity. And um, she sings it, the, the um, protagonist, the mother, and Kiki D. when I, I saw it, I saw the revival. And it, it does deal with plot elements. It, it keeps the show moving. And yet it's, it is about Marilyn Monroe, which doesn't have anything to do with the show. The, uh, plus you have um, these two little kids, these two brothers are separated from birth. And there's, it's, like, it's like Greek, you know, an ancient Greek drama. Um, there's a, an oracle, so to say, that if they ever um, meet and recognize each other, that they will die or uh, something like that. I don't remember now the exact wording, but um, they have to be played by 
um, people who will play, who, by the same actors who will play them when they're older. So that you basically have guys in their 20s or even 30s are romping around in these little shorts and things. And it, no, they don't look like kids. It reminds me of, of 30s Hollywood movies when you'd have people playing college men who are old enough to be on social security. Yeah. It, you know, you look at this thing and you just, but I can tell you that they knew that. It's not as though they're thinking, I wonder if we can get away with this. It, yeah. The show just does what it wants. It, it, this, you know, Willie Russell did not read the musical comedy handbook when he wrote that that show. He just wrote it. Yeah. yeah. And I'd love to ask about two of Andrew Lloyd Webber's flops, which I think people who are listening might not know as well, which you talk about, which are The Beautiful Game and Stephen Ward. Uh, see, I, I have a fondness for Stephen Ward because that was a, 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 a terrible event in British history. The guy really didn't do anything wrong. But, but he inadvertently revealed how corrupt the uh, 1%, uh, to use a more modern term, were, and out of revenge they killed him. He, he, technically, it was a suicide in prison, but he was either driven to suicide or maybe they just plain Jeffrey Epstein him. I, I, I don't know what the truth is, but um, uh, the show is very poorly produced, cheaply even produced, and some of the songs don't belong in the show because they they seem to... I'm going to go back to an American show to give an analogy. In um, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, um, midway in Act One, the girl who works in the diner, Dotsie May, her name is, and she sings a song called, of course, Dotsie May. It's about her. And you think, oh, what an interesting character. I wonder what will happen with her. And the answer is nothing. She just vanishes from the story at that point. And you think, then why did you give her a song? You, you interested us, and you know when when you ter- when you set something to music in a play, you are emphasizing the subject matter. That's why a, a, a flop number really creates a disaster. It isn't just oh that song isn't very good. It throws the whole story off because it's emphasizing something. Uh, a typical case is, believe it or not, when My Fair Lady was out of town um, on the street where you live was so not landing that they were going to cut it. And everyone wanted to accept Alan J. Lerner. He knew it was too good a song. I can't believe that Frederick Lowe was willing to sacrifice that great tune, but that's what it was. And he, he insisted on finding out what the problem was. Why wasn't this number going over? And the reason why is that there's the scene in Ascot when Freddie Einsford Hill is fascinated by Eliza. Now he's going to turn up on the street where she lives and sing the song. The problem was that Ascot, every woman is dressed differently and every man is in exactly the same gray suit. And the guy who originally originally played for the Einsford Hill, John Michael King, was uh, pleasant looking in a very nondescript way. So when he turned up alone and started to sing that song, the audience couldn't figure out who he was. And why is he here singing a love song? Plus, the verse had nothing to do with the show. It was just a standard. You can still see it if you want. I don't think it's ever been recorded. But the published sheet music of On the Street Where You Live does still have the same verse. And finally, Lerner figured out. They did everything. They fired this poor guy and they put his understudy. I know that didn't work. Finally, Lerner figured out that they needed to redo the verse so that it tied Freddie Einsford Hill to the Ascot scene. 
so the audience knew who he was. Otherwise, they would sit there, they would be looking at the program, they'd be asking each other, who was that? And they weren't listening to the music. This is one of the most popular ballads ever to appear in a musical, and they were going to cut it because it wasn't going over. Music always emphasizes everything. And what, in this case, the music was emphasizing the fact that no one was going to know who that guy was until Lerner wrote the new verse. When she mentioned how her aunt bit off the spoon, and people then realized this is the guy from the Ascot scene who liked her, and everything was fine. So, um, in the case of, of Stephen Ward, there are a number of songs like that that seem to project something important into the story, but it isn't important. And it, 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 it's a bunch of false starts that keep happening. It's got a wonderful opening. Oh. You know, it, it, you hear a kind of snake charmer um, uh, sort of thing. And, and he is, believe it or not, he's a wax dummy in Madame Tussauds, but not the main one, the annex. He didn't even make the main one. And the wax dummy is singing about, you know, the, the, you know, the, the oddity of destiny, so to say. And um, it, it's an interesting misfire, I would put it that way. Yeah. It, it's definitely um, not a worthless show, but it's it just, it went all wrong. Yeah. It went all, plus, I don't think anyone in England wants to know any more about that very sad story. Yeah, yeah. You know, he was in The Crown. I don't know, did you see The Crown? I, I haven't seen The Crown. It, it's much it, like it or not it's very well produced and it is yeah. fascinating i think there are a lot of things wrong with it but i found it so interesting i watched it twice in a row but at one point he actually turns up steve ward oh. in in um in the real Stephen, well not the real but you know an actor yeah. is playing Stephen ward and even there he's very likable and he's but by the way a very good chiropractor too i always oh. admire people who are good at what they do whatever it is yeah. i mean I, I always admire characters in, in plays or movies or whatever, who are expert. In any case, um, the other one, uh, The Beautiful Game. Well, you know, I, I, I don't know that show that well. I mean, there's a lot of Lloyd Webber, and I decided, I mean, I, I did my investigation of it, and I thought, I don't have a lot to say about this show, and I can't do all of Lloyd Webber. Some things have to be just mentioned, and that's what I did with The Beautiful Game. I, I, it's just mentioned in passing. So that just in case you didn't know, there it is. And of course, there's that odd thing. I don't know if I mentioned this in the book, but the big ballad in it starts with the exact same um, notes and harmony as theme from the apartment. Really? That um, it's a 1960 movie with Shirley MacLaine, yeah, yeah. Fred McMurray, and um, Jack Lemmon. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it was turned in, they put lyrics to it. The key to love. And um, you hear the exact same, just the very beginning. It's like the first A of the song. It's just that odd thing. Yeah. I don't think he ever heard the theme from the apartment, frankly. That's, that's a movie that doesn't get mentioned anymore. And it's not as though the soundtrack floats around everywhere. Yeah. But I, I always know that number because it was a very popular piano solo when I was a kid. That and theme from A Summer Place which was in the form of the a dance called The Stroll. The Stroll had a, a, a kind of 6-8 um, rhythm to it. And everyone, when I was in high school, everyone danced, the, well, everyone in public school danced The Stroll. I was in a prep school, and we were too clumsy, you know, we, were, we weren't cool enough to know about the latest dances, but we were aware of them, kind of thing. And those two um, 
um, piano solos. Everyone who played the piano, every kid, would play those solos all the time. So I'm very well aware of the theme from the apartment. And as soon as I heard it in The Beautiful Game, I, I alerted. Yeah. And so how did Weber and the pop opera fall out of fashion, and do you think that they could ever come back into fashion? No, I don't believe they will. I think there will be more through-sung pieces. Town is through-sung, yes. after all. But being through-sung doesn't necessarily make you a pop opera. You know, no one thinks of Town. No one calls it a pop opera. But it has the same elements, mainly that the whole thing is sung. Um, that uh, you know it has the same elements as Evita and Jesus Christ Superstar and so on. I I, I, I don't know what went wrong. I just think um, the first ones were hits, and then other people tried their hands at. For instance, uh, and there are foreign ones too, by the way, that we never find out about. They do them in France all the time now, and in Canada, in in um, um, Quebec. So uh, they're still being done. And, you know, there, there is one great one that I don't think has ever been, I think it was done at Paper Mill Playhouse. The, in Germany, they did The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which is the score of the, car, the Disney cartoon, but amplified by the same people. And it's a wonderful score. I have the German CD. Really, um, just very much worth hearing. Yeah. But I don't think they ever, I mean, if they ever had plans to do it in New York, unless they did and I just didn't notice. I don't think so, though. It, I, I know it was done at Paper Mill Playhouse, and I think they were wondering if they would bring it in or not. It, it's hard to say. So, the, 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 In other words, the movement goes on, but yes, it's not yes. center stage anymore. Yeah, yeah. And so who do you view now, I'm curious, as the sort of rising stars, not necessarily actors, but writers? I know you mentioned Charlie Stamp and also Styles and Drew in your book, but... Who do you think? Well, yeah, sort of... I think Styles and Drew are very talented, but they have to stop doing Mother Goose stories. You know, they have to um, they have to start writing uh, grown up subject matter. Um, yes, Charlie Stemp. I actually suggested, believe it or not, to uh, um, Scott Rudin. Oh, I said he should do a uh, he should stage Mister Cinders here with uh, Charlie Stemp because Charlie Stemp um, worked for him at Hello Dolly. Yeah. Uh, by the way, this was before <laughs> cancel culture, oh, yeah. uh, you know, reared its ugly head and got very upset at um, at, at Rudin. Yes, but yeah. um, um, who's now? Uh, he's doing the Broadway producer equivalent of rehab. He's reforming. But um, I thought Charlie Stemp would be a natural. Of course, you have to change it into a dance musical. But you know, Mr. Cinders was a very popular show in its revival in London not all that long ago, and it's never been done here. And of course, it's, it's see again. That's a typical British musical that they never brought over here because they didn't think it would go. It was too charming. It was too tender. It was too slight. It didn't have enough. You know, the American musical always has intensity, even if it's not generally intense. It has its intense moments. Gypsy is intense all the way. West Side Story is intense all the way. The Pajama Game is not intense all the way, but it has intense moments. And British musicals often have no intense moments. At least in the old days. I'm, you know, what would you say about now? Things are so different now. You can't generalize about things anymore. Also, musicals don't often are not ethnic anymore. They're not typically American. They're not typically British. They go around the world. Yeah. You know, yeah. What, what, what about Jesus Christ Superstar fits in with Bittersweet or <laughs> Mr. Cinders or the Arcadians or Gilbert and Sullivan, you know, that kind of thing. These, these, 
these shows are globally, their ethnicity is global, so to say. It's not um, geographical. And so as British musicals have moved from operetta to musical comedy to pop opera, where do you think that, if it still is a little bit even based on nationality, uh, where do you think it might be moving next in terms of trends? I, I, I couldn't say. You, it's, it's, you know, we're in such a weird era, and it's always difficult to predict. It's much easier to look back at, you know, 1728 and say, ah, oh, the Beggar's Opera, let me tell you about that one. You know, that makes my job much easier. I'm not good at predicting. I always get everything wrong. So uh, what I would love to do now, if it's okay with you, is to ask you just a few more questions about not this book, but about you and your own writing. Okay. And so sure. I'd love to know how you first became interested in theater and all of this. Well, my parents had cast albums. That was my entree. And this is way back when everyone had Oklahoma, Carousel, you know, that kind of thing. And I guess, I think what happened was I, I wanted to be taken to Oklahoma. And they said it closed. And I, I was so young that I didn't have that concept. You know, I thought once it, once it is, then it always is. I didn't realize that at a certain point it's not there anymore. So I said, well, then take me to Carousel. No, that closed. And I said, well, can I see The King and I? Well, that was still running. So I was taken to that. Yeah. And like, you know, every other um, precocious galing, I just became entranced and then I just wanted to see everything. Yeah. And who were some of the writers who inspired you, be they theater writers or outside of the theater world? No, I don't, I don't think anyone did, actually. Um, there are plenty of writers that I enjoy, but I, I don't think you could find any, any, um, any trace of them in my writing. It, it just, again, it's very abstract. It just happens. Yeah. It just, it, it, it's a, a combination of uh, probably things in your life rather than things that you've read. And so this may seem like sort of an obvious question, but I would be interested to know, because I think a lot of people will be curious to know this about you, what are the musicals that you most enjoy listening to or seeing? Oh, there are so many. It's, it's oh, yeah. very, very hard to, to narrow it down. I, I even, um, I have a friend, for instance, who had the same background that I did, but he never plays the old shows like, you know, Plain and Fancy that he loved when he was a kid. He just knows them too well. I've, I find great, uh, for instance, I'm going through a phase now where I'm collecting the 45 versions of all the cast albums, because um, they, from about 1949 to 1959, all the major labels were issuing um, 45 sets of, of the albums they recorded. And so now I'm going through them all again. And I, um, I just, just today, it, and downstairs, and um, the doorman handed me Lost in the Stars, uh -huh. um, six Decca 45s. Same cover as, of course, the, what I find especially, especially amusing about this is, uh, it, I don't want to have to get into too much detail, but technically, sometimes they can't fit all of the LP onto the 45s. So they have to leave stuff off. And it's interesting, sometimes it's the second verse of something. Sometimes it's, uh, it's the introduction, for instance, the pajama game. Columbia didn't do this that much, but the pajama game overture on 45s is missing its first page. The, the overture begins with a kind of um, fanfare on seven and a half cents. 
And it goes on for about, I would say, 15 seconds, and then it goes into, hey there. Well, on 45, it starts with hey there, which is very abrupt. There's no ramp up. It's just, Rump. there we go. And um, uh, New Girl in Town on 45 is missing no less than five cuts. The overture, the torch song she sings just before the Dream Ballet, and three little reprises. And I, this is very disappointing to me. Oh. And um, in any case, what's interesting, too, is that these really didn't go over well. Uh, people weren't buying them um, to make them commercially feasible. So yeah. by 1956-57, well, for instance, Candide never got a, uh, that's the end of 1956, never got a, a 45 set. 57, they're not doing it very much at all. 58, only Columbia was left. They did two in 58, two in 59. And the two and 59 are the ones you'd, you'd expect. It's uh, Gypsy and The Sound of Music. And in 58, is Flower Drum Song and, believe it or not, Oh Captain. Very unexpected. When you're doing almost nothing in 45s, that one turns up. And um, so in answer to your question, that's what I enjoy playing. I'm going over all the classic titles from very looking forward to Lost in the Stars. I've heard it meant, that was another one my parents had on 78s no less, on six Decalite 10-inch recordings. And I used to um, listen to them with my father. We would lie on the on the carpeting, and we would play these things. In, in those days, they had these uh, ways of playing 70s. So you'd stack them on the spindle, and you'd, this thing would go over and hold them. And then they would supposedly, one by one, as one ended, the next one would fall down, and the needle would go out of the way, and then it would come in. But it never worked properly, and they would always smash up. <laughs> the needle would always uh, scratch your records. But we would do that anyway. We listened to symphonies that, that way, too, oddly enough. Um, he turned out to be a monster, so I, I'm not going to continue with this one. But uh, the ones I like uh, are basically those classic shows, Plain and Fancy. That's not a classic anymore. That's not even a cult musical. I, I don't know what, what you'd call that. And even Oklahoma and Carousel, Song of Norway, um, uh, even the weird ones like Make a Wish. Victor put out everything. Even Mrs. Patterson came out on 45s. But they stopped by, you know, 1956, as I say. It just wasn't going. So those are the ones I think I play most of all. But I, I play modern ones, too. Uh, just last night, I was playing Avenue Q again, because I'm just about to write, write about it in my Gaze on Broadway book, and I just wanted to refresh myself. And I'd forgotten how catchy it is. It's very charming music. Clever lyrics, too. But it's just a lot of fun to listen to. Yeah. Well, that is, that's, a very, that, that's a show that is best described as fun. Yes, yeah. And um, I like puppets anyway. And so you were saying that your style wasn't influenced by anyone else, but I know that I wouldn't be alone in saying that you are the greatest musical theater author, I think, of all time. And what do you think your style is, if you could sort of put words to it? Oh, I would say, well, it's playful. It's friendly and conversational. And it, it's, um, I'll tell you this, this is not my description, but many people in like reviewing these books or writing about them, say that it's like having dinner with a friend who's very knowledgeable and is just holding forth on the subject. Yeah. It does sound almost as though someone is speaking to the reader, which is a, a, a tone I like to take. I like to be friendly and um, and include the reader in 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 my you know peregrinations through the through the field. Yes. Playful, I, I would say above all. I, I, you know, I'm not above 
making a joke, but I also like to shock at a case because I, if you want to make an important point, you can't just state it. You really have to send 500 volts through for 50 to land. And sometimes it is necessary to overspeak to get the reader's attention. Yeah. And so before you were a author of books, you were a lyricist, and you were at Lehman Engel's BMI program? Actually, I, I was a composer, and oh. then I lost, my, uh, I lost my lyricist partner, so I became a lyricist, too. Oh, oh, I didn't know. And so what was your experience like at BMI and with Lehman Engel? Yes, I, I, I loved the, the class. It was a lot of fun. But I had a day job, so it was complicated, because we met, I think it was on Fridays, Thursdays or Fridays at three or something like that, which made it difficult for me. But uh, and I worked on I did a musical version of Zuleika Dobson, and I did one based on Shakespeare's Measure for Measure, and it was fun because you would um, you'd write another song or two and then you'd perform them for the class. Most of whom were imbeciles, I have to tell you. I mean, a, a lot of major people uh, um, came through that class. A lot of major shows yes. were. Um, were, uh, I mean, major Broadway shows came up there, but a lot of the people in the class were not that creative, and they really didn't know anything at all. And um, there was one great day, though. Lehman announced that Richard Rogers was going to come to the next class, and each of us was going to come up to the piano and play one of our songs. Richard Rogers wanted to find out the state of the art. And here we go. And I thought, oh, thrilling. And I did, I, I performed one of my Measure for Measure songs. And each of us came up, one after the other, doing these, um, doing our songs. And he was at that, that, he was very quiet. He didn't really say much at all. And he had cancer of the jaw and, you know, he, and he was feeble. He was physically feeble, as happens with age. And had to be helped to his car, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, but it was a very interesting experience. We, it was our chance to feel that we were part of the great Broadway tradition. Hooray. And I told a friend about this. And I said, isn't that wonderful that with his incredible track record and all the great scores he has to look back on, that he wanted to come and hear us just out of the sheer, um, I don't know, um, generosity of heart. And my friend said, I had it completely wrong. He said he's run through every good lyricist. He's looking for someone new. And he ran through all of you people to see who would work. Well, oh, yeah. And instead he ended up with Martin Charnin. And so when did your ambitions switch from being a musical theater writer to writing about musical theater? Um, oh, I do know why. I, I, now, that's one I can answer. Um, so I couldn't attend the class anymore because I had a day job. For, I was with a magazine called Opera News, and I had a friend who was a literary agent, not mine, she was just a friend to me, and she was speaking to an editor at Viking, and he said the one thing he would, the one book he would love to publish is A History of the American Musical, and Dorothy said, oh, I know just the person for that, so she called me up and she said, go over, she told me, you know, this is the guy and this is the time. And just be prepared to give him an idea of the kind of book you would write and what you would emphasize and how you would structure it and so on. And she said he'll probably ask for a, a little proposal and maybe one or two chapters on spec. 
But that's usual. She said, so don't worry about it. So on the appointed day, I crossed the park from the west side to the east side to the Viking offices, and I had this meeting with him. And I talked my way into a contract. When I got back to Opera News, the phone was ringing, and it was uh, Dorothy, who was now my agent. She said, he's going for it. So I didn't have to give them anything on spec. And that was my first book, The History of the American Musical. So since I was now a published author, it was natural for me to want to do more books. Yeah. And then I didn't have to, um, the, the kind of writing for, you know, writing musicals for Broadway kind of slipped away. Yeah. And was that book what inspired you to sort of break it down into decades because there was so much there or... No, no, I, it's just that um, the, the Decades book, I, you know, again, I don't even know why I came up with that idea, because it's, it, I mean, it was Oxford, and I had a very good relationship with my editor at the time then, who was no longer with us, unfortunately, um, a classic editor of the old school, Sheldon Meyer, and um, no other house would have done that, you know, that's a, what is that, a six-volume history of the American musical broken down decade by decade, it's, it's, um, a, a a stretch. Although, you know, actually, uh, it started at Oxford and then it moved to St. Martin's. So there you are, a, a commercial publisher did take it up. Yeah, yeah. And so with these decades books, could you pick out one decade that you think changed the course of the theater the most? I, I can think of several. For instance, the 20s, that's the decade in which the great, um, um, first of all, you already have Irving Berlin and Joan Kern. They're joined by George Gershwin, Cole Porter. It's true, Cole Porter had a, a flop uh, in 1916, but that doesn't count. The, the, the Rogers and Hart, um, uh, the, the, the whole thing comes together. The, the shows start to have smarter um, librettos and really clever lyrics and interesting music in a way that they didn't in the 1910s for the most part, for the most part, because there was Berlin and Kern. But the 20s is when um, the musical as we know it really takes its form. If you go back to the 1910s and try to revive, say, Jerome Kern's Princess Theater shows, I mean, they can play reasonably well, but they wouldn't last long on Broadway. Yeah. I mean, one was revived. In fact, I think it was in the 1970s, a good speed revival came in, a very good Eddie. But uh, basically, those are a bit primitive for what we now think of. But the 20s is where the whole thing fits together. But then you could argue that the 1940s and the the eruption of the Rodgers and Hammerstein musical play, so-called, where the character relationships are the most important thing in the show. You couldn't say that of most shows in the 1920s. So the 1940s could be called the, uh, the... most important decade. Then you have the 1970s. That's the era of the concept musical um, by Sondheim and Prince. You have um, Company, Follies, a little night music, Pacific Overtures, and then Sweeney Todd. Very influential. And Sweeney Todd really is another pop opera. Not not in the sense of Jesus Christ Superstar, but it is another nearly through-sung work. The score really carries the whole show. There isn't that much dialogue in it. So, but yeah. not much, not not the usual amount. It's like the most happy fella in that sense. So there are a number of decades, I would say. And I'm curious to ask, in in writing these books, do you ever do interviews as part of your process? or? Well, you... I, I think one of the things you learn when you write books like this, you start 
by doing as many interviews as you can. But after a while, you realize that people are not remembering well. Yeah. And, and another thing is, they, their perspective is that they were the center of the history of theater, and everything else revolves around them. You know, so you, you'll be speaking to someone who had um, a role in some musical. I'm not going to mention any names or titles. And this person says, well, you know, the, the entire show fell apart when they cut my song. You see, you're, you're getting people who are, they have a, an axe to grind, is the old. And, and you're, you're hearing too much that isn't really true. Yeah. When I did the Rodgers and Hammerstein book, I did interview Jamie Hammerstein. And believe it or not, um, the uh, Dowager Empress Hammerstein, because Rogers was dead by then. And um, maybe Mary, I don't remember. And I, uh, uh, John Fernley, who was a major Rogers and Hammerstein associate. And um, they were long interviews. And I got something from, nothing from the widow. She didn't really know much about the shows. But Jamie had worked as a production associate on Flower Drum Song. So I, I learned a few things from him that I could use. And John Fernley also um, had some good stories. Um, but I, I, I found basically that interviews were largely a waste of time. Yeah. It's like when you see those YouTubes, YouTube videos, but I like to say YouTubes, of um, people like rehearsing for encores. You know, they're going to yeah. do, they're reviving, I don't know, King Dodo, and, and everyone's there, and you see the production number being rehearsed, and this is going on, and that is going on. But then there are moments when they do the talking head stuff, and yeah. the heroine says, well, it's just so wonderful because they're so lifelike. And the guy says, yes, and I love them or something. And you're thinking, you have nothing to say, none of you. You're so typical. You're typical actors. You're talented. You're going to light up the sky when the curtain goes up, but you have nothing to say about the content of the show. Yeah. This is just a waste of time. The directors, they never come through with anything that you can use. That's why I'm always, I love to be around actors simply hoping that they'll tell some marvelous story, and they almost never do. Yeah. They um, almost never do. You'd be amazed how you, you can have, you can be at a dinner party, and someone is there, and let's say you've seen her in, like, you know, 20 things. She's worked with the best. Yeah. But, they, you know, they're always thinking about themselves. They're not really noticing. I'll tell you, these weren't interviews, but where I learned the most, and I'm still using material I got them, was when I first came to New York after college, and I would be um, mentored, so to say, by um, older gay men who had been um, chorus boys or stage managers or assistant stage managers. And the stage managers particularly, those are the ones who know the shows. Yeah. They have to. That's their job. They have to know who comes in and where the set should be and the props. And um, where's Matilda? If she's got two seconds to come on stage. They know what everything is. And they have some great stories. I learned how Lady in the Dark went from the dialogue scenes to the dream sequences and back from one of those people. You know, the, that wasn't available elsewhere. How, how they actually managed through lighting and the little revolving stages that they used and so on. And that they were fast. They really knew their stuff. They had interesting things to say. And that's where um, a, a chorus boy would be the uh, chorus boy would be the, or chorus girl would be the source of the and the story about um, Jerome Robbins in Billion Dollar Baby berating the ensemble. They're all on stage facing him. He's downstage facing them. And as he's talking, he's stepping back 
toward the orchestra pit, and he doesn't realize how close he is, and he's about to fall in, and none of them says anything. And he crashes into it. Yeah. Billion dollar baby. And it would have been one of those people who would have told you that story, and that's how you find out about certain things that have been occurring. Yeah. But, but um, official interviews for a book, no, you don't really, you don't find out much. It's a waste of time. I never do it anymore. You know, I did a book on Chicago, the musical, yes. and I did try to interview a number of people, but I didn't get anything. I didn't have any interviews. They dodged me. Actually, I spoke on the phone with John Cantor for a bit. And what's something that you've found in your research that surprised or even shocked you the most? I'll tell you what. It's for gays on Broadway. Oh. What shocked me the most was I was doing um, um, Eva Legallion. And I had dimly known that when um, the Roosevelt administration was putting together the, um, oh. in effect, uh, a, a national theater welfare situation, the federal theater it was called, was to keep um, the people in the theater working. The government would pay for the productions and would pay the salaries because the depression was such that it was in danger of not only closing theater down, but of discouraging anyone from coming into the theater as a profession, which mean that meant that even if the theater recovered, there wouldn't be the, you know, the, the software, so to say, the people to, um, to be cast. So who should run the federal theater? And the idea they got was Eva Legallion who was a lesbian. And although she didn't give inter newspaper interviews and say, I am a lesbian, she wasn't closeted. Everybody knew that she was a lesbian and they offered her the job. Yeah. And Roosevelt was very vulnerable because he had a lot of critics in Congress. There are a lot of people who really, even Democrats, who didn't like him. And if he had hired Eva Legallion and he wanted to, they would have run with that. And it could have been very, very damaging. But he still thought she'd be the best person. As it turned out, she did not see eye to eye on this because he wanted, and Harry Hopkins, his, his assistant who was really running this, they wanted a job program. They didn't care about the quality. They wanted people to get salaries so they could support their families and pay their rent. That was the, that's what the federal theater was for. But she said, no, it shall be for Chekhov and for Ibsen and Shakespeare and the greatest of the, and the flowery, this, and the beautiful productions. And they were thinking, no, 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 that's, that, that's, more, that's elitist. Yes. We don't want to be elitist. We want to save people's lives. <laughs> so when they told her what they had in mind, she said, well, I'm not the right person for that. You'll have to get someone else. And they ended up with a political operative kind of yeah. thing. But it shocked me that they were so willing to um, to take on a, vul a political vulnerability because they thought she was the, the quality. Yeah. And so I think that's the most shocking thing I discovered in my entire career. And so Inspiring, I mean. Not shocking bad, shocking good. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. And so, of course, Gaze on Broadway will be your next book, which sounds very exciting. And do you have other ideas or for the future books? You no, want I, to I think I, I, I think I'm finished with writing books on the arts. Oh. I think I've, 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 I've written every book I wanted to write. Yeah. And so, I, you know, I haven't taken a vacation in over 20 years. I don't even take weekends off. Oh, I'm on a treadmill, and I would really like to retire. Yeah. And so I'd love to just ask you one last question then, which is what advice would you give to a young person starting out? 
Starting out in, in what in, field? In in your field of writing. Oh, writing. Oh, I, I, I have bad news. I, you know, the, I, in my lifetime, I have seen the audience for books on the arts um, um, growing smaller and smaller every yeah. every year. Yeah. So I, I, I wouldn't encourage, I would say write fiction. Don't write books on the arts. I've written fiction, too. Then if I do any more writing, I will return to fiction. Oh, well, thank you for doing this. It's been wonderful and very interesting, and I appreciate your taking the time. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you. Listeners, thank you for tuning in, and remember to come back next time when I am joined by the icon Julie Budd. As a cabaret singer, she performed everywhere from the Catskills, where she got her start at the ripe old age of 13, to Caesar's Palace, and opened for George Burns, Frank Sinatra, Liberace, and Bob Hope, among others. You can also hear her many albums, including If You Could See Me Now, Pure Imagination, and They Wrote the Songs. She appeared on screen in Two Lovers, The Devil and Max Devlin, The Carol Burnett Show, The Jim Neighbors Hour, and more, and on stage in Options, Catskills on Broadway, and Out of Town in Wild and Wonderful. She also toured for many years with the great Marvin Hamlish and charted on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1976 with One Fine Day. So make sure to tune back in for that, and thanks for listening.